Okay, guys, it's 2023. What does that mean? Well, as much as I may want to resist going with the ye old New Year's resolutions, I do find that in January, I have a renewed sense of energy and desire to make some changes and get back on or just get on for the first time, the horse of health and well-being. Now, in the midst of our seventh season of Heal, I wanted to check in with you, my audience. What do you need now in your healing journey? What are your goals? What are you struggling with, dealing with, or even resigned to that you don't think will ever change? What has been there lingering in the background that you just don't want to drag into yet another year? I want to hear from you. I want to connect and be sure that we are delivering on the topics of information and inspiring stories to support you in your healing journey. When Kendra and I first crafted the idea for Heal, it definitely came out of my personal desire to put as much goodness and possibility of health and healing out into the world. And not actually here just to entertain you. My true heart's desire is that this show makes a difference in your life and supports you to take action to live health and heal. Also, I want to be sure that you know, I have a comprehensive deep dive medical health consulting practice where I meet with my clients virtually from all over the world, and I have room for you. Many people ask me if I'm taking new clients, and while I love that y'all think I'm book solid 100% of the time, actually, I want you to know I am available. I offer a free 30-minute exploration conversation to anyone interested in working with me to learn more about each other and how my approach may make a difference for you. Commonly, I work with people dealing with hormone issues, gut and digestive issues, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders, mold toxicity, chronic allergies, migraine headaches, insomnia, and people who have dealt with chronic anxiety and depression looking to support their body's biochemistry in addition to healing their emotional and mental challenges. While that may seem like quite a list, most of those diseases are connected and disorders are connected. So we will bridge the gap to bring it all together to elevate your health and your well-being and get your life back. I have a deeply intuitive and scientific-based approach. Yes, both. I bridge the worlds of coaching, spiritual energy healing, and doctoring to bring you the best tools you need to get your life and your health back as efficiently and effectively as possible. The early months of the new year come with an increasing light each day, bringing new vision, new motivation, and new energy. As the seeds you planted last summer and fall, deep beneath the soil are slowly waking up and gathering their power to sprout new futures this spring. This is the perfect time to take new action and create health and a pathway to healing. I'm here for you. If you have felt called to find out more about the possibility of working together, please reach out on my Connect page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com, and let's talk. Also, please contribute to the show with guest ideas or topic ideas or how-to guides or whatever it is that is going to make a difference for you this year in 2023. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to know about? What are you dealing with? You can shoot us an email on that same page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com slash connect. I love you guys. Heal wouldn't exist without you. Thanks so much. Welcome to Heal. Today, Dr. Kate Lund and I discuss building resilience for children and families. In this challenging time of transitioning out of the lockdowns of COVID, many families are working out how to get back to normal and discovering normal is not what it used to be. Dr. Lund shares with us her best resources for how to support your children and yourself to navigate challenging circumstances, making major life decisions, and how to tune into your own unique context to maximize your individual potential in life. Dr. Kate Lund is a licensed clinical psychologist, peak performance coach, best-selling author, and TEDx speaker. With a specialized training in medical psychology, she uses a strength and evidence-based approach to help parents and children build, build resilience so they can thrive in school, sports, and life. During Kate's childhood, she faced and eventually overcame a difficult childhood illness, so she learned at an early age to believe in the possibility that exists on the other side of challenges. Join us. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall.
Kate Lund, thank you so much for being here and being a part of the Heal community. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Yeah, I am as well. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a licensed psychologist and do you only work with kids or do you also work with adults or what? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I I definitely do work across the lifespan. I trained initially as a child psychologist, focusing mostly on medical psychology, working a lot with kids and families who had a significant medical diagnosis. You know, the child had the significant medical diagnosis, but have pivoted over time and at this point work across the lifespan. A lot of parenting, though, and a lot of work with parents who are struggling with challenges that their kids might have and helping them to see what's possible for their kids within that context. Well, this is totally perfect for HEAL because we've got a lot of parents that listen and a lot of our audience and and it's been a conversation we've touched on here and there, but I think we kind of can't have enough conversations about how to take care of ourselves and take care of our families inside of all sorts of challenging situations. And I know these last three years, many of my clients they homeschooled their kids and they had a whole big, massive change to their lifestyle. And now we're in this like kind of transitioning out of it or maybe fully transitioning out of it and readapting to things. And so I think it's, it's very top of mind of how do we make sure we're taking care of our families? And then I'm always the one that's beating the drum of also taking care of you as the parent as well. So awesome. Absolutely. That makes all of all of what you just said makes so much sense and so many challenges embedded in those last three years above and beyond, you know, the inevitable challenges that we all face anyway. Right. Yeah. What have you been seeing in your practice that like people have had to deal with more specifically in this year transitioning, quote, back out? Right. Yeah. You know, that's such a good question. And I'll, I'll actually start with myself because, you know, great we place were, to start <laughs> when, when we were all at home, you know, during kind of the height of COVID, you know, we were pretty fortunate in that our boys were able to sort of self-manage their, their school. So that wasn't a big issue. So for me, it meant that I could really focus in on my work. I was doing virtual therapy, a lot of virtual therapy. And there was, you know, I was able to, the schedule was perfect. It, it worked great, to be honest. When things started opening up and the transition back to school and activities and just, you know, typical day-to-day life happened, it became quite intense, quite stressful. I definitely had to pivot on my work front so that I could, you know, make all the rest of these things happen as well as have a little bit of time, you know, to throw in half an hour, 45 minutes of exercise, walk the dog, that sort of thing. So it it did become a lot more challenging when things started opening. And in terms of my clients, I've really observed the same thing, you know, whereas at the beginning of the kind of lockdown and pandemic, we were seeing a lot of spikes and anxiety, sort of this, what's going to happen? What is this all going to, going to mean? But then sort of that, ebbed a little bit. And then when the opening happened, I saw a spike again in major kind of, you know, it wasn't always clinical anxiety, but the stress of having to shift and adapt in these ways that are are very real. I'm sort of, you know, replugging in day-to-day life and, you know, mood-related symptoms, anxiety-related symptoms, just feeling overall crummy, you know, which might be related to anxiety mood related stuff or otherwise, you know, just yeah. lifestyle issues needing to be recalibrated. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot, you know, I work with people predominantly dealing with their own chronic illnesses, or I have some people that are committed to their pretty well, but they'd like to stay pretty well. And, and so from a preventative model, but you know, this, and, and again, speaking for myself is like, as things have shifted, but I've seen it and heard it in my, my, clients a lot is like making ourselves wrong. Like, God, I used to be able to handle this and so much more. What's wrong with me now? And like that, our bodies adapt, our brains adapt. And there were some things that, I mean, I, I was able to move home to New York and I'm closer to my family and my whole life took on a different rhythm than it had ever. And there's some of that I don't want to give up, (laughs) but then I've been like up against like, some loneliness and feeling disconnected and wanting to find tribe and wanting to find community that like shifted so much during that time. And I'm not a parent, 
So I don't, you know, for parents, there's a lot of built in interaction that happens a lot of times. And so then that's been what I've been up against is like, how do I get plugged back in, in a way that's nourishing versus just being stressed all the time? Exactly. Yeah, that is such a a good point and a real experience for so many, right? Because the way things shifted and then that sort of process of trying to plug back in and finding what works for you, because we know how powerful and nourishing social connection is. And that's, you know, one of the sort of key things, if it's positive social connection that can really help in our overall sense of well-being and our ability to manage our stress response over time. Yeah. And that's like co-regulating that I, from others around us. Yeah. Y- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that has really been at the forefront of my work with a lot of folks who might be presenting with sort of subclinical mood related symptoms, subclinical anxiety related symptoms, but the stress, it's the stress, right? And helping them to find ways to manage that stress response so that they're at sort of a modulated place consistently as opposed to starting up here. I know your listeners can't see where my hand is, but Hi. Having, <laughs> yeah. having, having a stressor hit and then boom, Higher. intensity, yeah. and then they shut down because it's just too much. So that so I find very important. Let's talk about what some of those things might be. I mean, one of the kind of platforms that you've shared with me when we talked before this interview is around resiliency. And that's a word I use a lot, physiologic resiliency, like strength of the immune system, strength of the gut microbiome, like our endocrine system being in balance and all the ways that we can do. And I talk about like, we're, you know, making deposits into our health bank account with good food and good sleep and good movement and love and fun and enjoyment of our life. And we can make withdrawals from time to time, like it's fine. Sure. And if there's nothing in the tank though, and then we Mm -hmm. go under those high stresses, it's like, were kaput. So I imagine there's sort of like a mirror image to that conversation, but I'd love to hear more of like, I mean, even just starting with like, what is, what is resiliency really from your perspective? What does that mean? Or what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. And so at a very sort of foundational level, resiliency, resilience is this ability to move through and beyond challenge, to get up when you've been knocked down, kind of circumvent the challenge in a way from from another angle or or something along those lines. It's also though to really be able to appreciate your own unique context hmm. and find the ways to move through challenge within that context in a way that allows you to move closer to your potential. So your own unique context, because we're not all the same, right? And and we can't expect ourselves to respond to a challenge the same way our you know partner or our spouse mm-hmm. or our best friend or our coworker might you know and so really appreciating our own unique context is a big piece of our ability to move forward when a challenge hits can you give us some examples of what some of those and maybe from your own life or from people around you but like what would be some differences in those contexts how, like what would that look like Sure. So, you know, for me as a as a child, I grew up with a serious medical condition. Hydrocephalus was diagnosed when I was 4. And so my context looked very different than say many of my peers. I was, you know, in and out of school, spent a lot of time, you know, in the hospital as a result of needing to get my shunt fixed, which is the thing that manages hydrocephalus. And so I'd come back to school with, you know, half of my head shaved or having missed, you know, a whole unit in math and really had to figure out how I could catch up, right? And I had to learn to compare myself to myself in those instances. And that sort of carried over to the rest of of my life and you know for better or for worse i'm not really that competitive of a person but i do have high standards for myself and i'll compete with myself so that's kind of what i'm talking about in this way sort of really looking at your own reality in terms of how are you going to move forward you know to the best of your ability whatever that looks like for you and not worrying about 
you know, what your friend or your coworker or your neighbor is doing, but really looking at it within your own unique context. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what the rest of these guys are doing, but in terms of, you know, your own sense of well-being, it's important not to not to have these comparisons going on. Uh, yeah, I, I have a tendency towards competitiveness and comparing myself like crazy. So this is great. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and right. it's something I'm aware of and I like have times when I'm better at it than others. And it can be very like friendly, playful, healthy competition. But then sure. there, when my shadow side comes out, like <clears throat> <laughs> challenging. Yeah, yeah, totally. I hear you. And, and, it's, and it's real, right? Yeah. 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 You know, and I, not that it was the same, but there's some similarities for my childhood. I had pretty severe asthma, like it would take me out for weeks at a time. And I often would have, you know, run of the mill cold or upper respiratory infection. And I would start to resolve that in three to five days. And then the asthma would set in and I'd be sick for two or three weeks after. So I spent a third of my childhood at home, not so many hospital visits, but some, there was a few hospital visits. Yeah, um, I never finished the eighth grade because I had mononucleosis so bad they hospitalized oh. me and I was down for oh. four months, you know, oh. and I had good enough grades. They were like, just move on. We'll see you in the fall. Right. But it was, right. you know, missing units, getting caught up, having to figure those things out. Like, and it's interesting that some of that I'm amazed in this. I give my mother a ton and my dad, you know, a huge amount of credit for how they raised me that. I actually had a sense of being an excellent student mm-hmm. because yes. I could literally be homesick for two weeks, not do anything, play catch up, manage to stay inside. Like my study habits kind of had to be rigorous for that. Yes. And it went really well for me in college when the pressure went up where I have other friends who they did great. High school was relatively easy for them. They got to college and it was so hard. And I had all these skills of how to deal with the pressure. Yes, that is such an amazing point because I had that exact experience, right? Because I had to overcompensate when, you know, I had to play catch up and I had it. So I got the memo really early. Sounds like you did as well that, you know, you have to work hard and sometimes you have to work harder than the next person to get the same results. But then in the long run, the results are awesome because I also, I, I had a, I shouldn't say this out loud, but a relatively easy time academically in college because I was super well prepared for working hard. Yeah, understood. Totally. So when we look at what are some of our access points to build resiliency or like if we don't feel like if we're at a place where, you know, and I mean, I will, I'm very transparent on this, this podcast all the time. It's like, you know, when you say move through and beyond challenges and, and that, I'm like, yeah, I can see where I haven't had as much resiliency. Like I'm thin where when heavy stress states or certain things come on, my dad passed away from pancreatic cancer last Mm. year. It was the first major death in my life. And it's kind of rocking my world. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a lot of capacity around being very in the present moment with my grief and my emotions because I have built a lot of emotional intelligence over the years and it's something I value in myself. I'm kind of blown away how like my, what I would call my resiliency to deal with other potential losses. The, the, you know, there's like, there's some stuff I can see that I need to unwind. Like, like the first six months of losing dad was a lot about the acute grief. Now I'm in the second six months and I'm noticing all these other impacts in other places in my life. And the way I would describe it is like, I feel worn thin like my skin's not very thick. I take offense to things easily. I have these different emotional responses that are not, I used to be more of a water off duck's back kind of in so many ways. And so we don't have to use me as an example. I'm just putting it on the court, right? Like where does somebody go? How do I go about, or how would somebody go about starting to look for how to build resiliency back into their emotional life? Yeah, that's such a good question. I'm sorry about your dad, by the way. That's that's so hard. And so, yeah. you know, it starts with awareness. And it sounds like that's something that you've got quite a bit of. You, you sort of see where the, the gaps are. You see what's kind of shifted as a result of the, the loss, that sort of thing. So we really want folks to have awareness for what's going on with them. How are they responding to things in a given moment? Is that different than what's happened in the past, for example? And with kids, 
you know, we really, in terms of building foundational resilience, you know, with very, very small kids, we want to model. We want to model sort of trying new things, uh, taking risks within reason, that sort of thing, sort of moving outside your comfort zone is what I mean Mm -hmm. by risks. And then as, you know, kids get a little bit older and sort of the developmental trajectory starts to happen, you know, we want to start having conversations with them about sort of, you know, trying new things. No, I can't do that. I'm afraid. You know, but, but why? And try to, trying to help them to understand where the blocks are and trying to encourage them to try anyway and recognize what they're actually capable of and then kind of build from there. Also, as parents, you know, we want to be transparent with our kids We want to not hide our struggles as human Mm. beings, but rather be open and transparent around the fact that, yeah, sure, certain things have been been hard for me too. And, you know, that sort of sort of piece is very, very important. I've I've seen that both in my own life as well as with clients. And, you know, also helping kids to, you know, understand that it's okay. I don't really like the word fail, but it's okay to fail. It's okay for things not to work out the first time out of the gate. In fact, it's expectable. It's a part of the growth kind of process, the growth model. So we want to help them to understand that, you know, that's a normal part of what it's going to be to get better at either the thing you're doing or something else if you try a different angle. And I have quite a few examples I can share about that with my own son, you know, if that would be, be great. Be yeah, it'd be awesome. Yeah. And so I've got 15-year-old twins and they're best friends, but they're very different. And one of them has had a relatively easier time in the classroom and in sports and that sort of thing. And his brother, who's very, very social, has had a little bit of a harder time in the classroom up front. Things are really evolving. He's really doing well. A little bit of a harder time sort of in sports and trying to figure out, hmm, where's this going to click for me? So this past year, starting freshman year, he tried cross country and wasn't really feeling it, but he followed it through and he did it and he ran the final race of the season with his best time having woken up in the morning thinking, I can't do this. I'm not going. And we're like, dude, got to just try. Give it your best, right? Encouraging them to give it their best is really, really key. And he did it and was so proud, right? Mm -hmm. Then kind of grappling with this idea, should I try wrestling in the winter? Should I not? Tried it, found that it wasn't really for him was a giant bruise before Christmas break. And, you know, we had to decide, should he move on from this? Should he stick it out? And he ended up moving on into a crew program. And it's amazing to see how this kid is coming alive in the past Mm. three months or what have you, I guess two months now. But I mean, he is really in it. And something with it has clicked and it's amazing to watch. And it's been a really kind of positive experience for him, but positive experience for us too, because we've seen him develop a sense of awareness of what's working, what's not, how can I tweak, how can I figure out how to move forward? And that's translating into the classroom and into many other areas of his life as well. So it's just, it can be such a powerful process when that starts to unfold. And that's, I think, part of what really helps one to be resilient in the long run. Because if things come too easily, there can be issues later on because kids don't know how to get, or or any of us don't know how to get back up again and yeah. move forward. I was totally guilty of that. Like I had a lot of sort of natural athletic ability out of the gate with certain things, but I also was raised, I lovingly say I was raised by hippies. And so I went to like a Montessori school. I did my first yoga classes when I was four and five years old, but I didn't play soccer or softball or the usual things in that uh, sports. And so I would try on something and I would kind of be, you know, my, my PE people would always be like, yeah, you should totally go for that. And I, I, the, no way I was going to go out for the team for anything. And I hid from that for a long time. I was in my thirties and I got invited to just go down to a park and play volleyball for the fun of it. And yes. I had to go through 
all these emotional spaces to challenge myself to like go out there and look bad. Like the whole world of like, it's okay that I'm not any good at this. It's okay that I don't know what I'm doing. And like, I got most improved player of the day award because I definitely, you know, but I mean, and it, but the emotional part that was there for me of like, if I wasn't going to be good at it, I wouldn't do it. And it's taken a lot of time in my adulthood to actually grow beyond those spaces. There were the things I was naturally already really good at. And I just stayed in my lane and didn't want to expand out anywhere. Yeah. And that's, and that's a very real point that you make, right? And it it is the experience of so many. And so for me and, and for my son that I just described, it's, it's sort of the opposite, right? It's, it's hard out of the gate and it's, and you know, particularly for me growing up, there were a lot of things that I physically just couldn't do either in because of risk of getting hurt or hitting my head or whatever, or just my body didn't quite work in that way. Right. So I had to sort of pivot a lot and find that thing that did work. And for me, that actually happened to be tennis. And that was a really important piece of my childhood, actually, because I got pretty good at it because it was the sport that I played. And um, it was awesome. You know, lots of social relationships built around that, lots of great opportunities on the court. But the key here is to say I was never the best and I was okay with that, right? I was out there playing. I love to play. Rarely did I win the tournament. Rarely. And, you know, it just, it was the way it was, right? Yeah. But there were lots of positives in it. And I think I learned to see the positives in it. And, you know, that was for me a very good experience. So that, that brings me right into one of my other areas I really want to talk to you about. And I was listening to your TEDx talk that you did in 2018. And there was a conversation in that about the importance of teaching our kids to be ordinary. Mm, That is not a common conversation in our world today, right? Like (laughs) everything's like, you know, social media and being the, and, and we, I mean, I am in my 40s and I still feel like I'm more inundated by opportunities to compare myself to people who are doing the amazing things. I mean, mm-hmm. this making of this podcast, like I resisted it for years, years and years and years. And when I finally stepped into it, the way that I had the courage to take this on was that this mm-hmm. podcast, sorry, listeners, yeah. this is all about me. This is 100% <laughs> for me. Like if, yeah. if I'm having fun and I enjoy it and I think that the content resonates with me and like it's what I want to put out into the world, that's my only standard. Turns out lots of other people are enjoying it and getting benefit from it, which I love because that is also who I am, like to contribute to others and make a difference. Yeah. But as soon as I start and I will routinely start to watch myself go down the pathway of how many listeners and what are our statistics and what do we need to do? And like the comparison game and the notches on the, on the belt Mm -hmm. and all of the, like all the other people that are out there, well, they've had a podcast for two years and then they've got this many things and And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I got to like rein it back in myself here. And so this conversation for me personally, but I think for the world of the power of being ordinary, tell me, what does that mean to you? And like, what do you see about it? Yeah, yeah. And and so that really does go back to this idea of kind of appreciating our own unique context and mm. building ourselves up within that context in terms of, you know, passions, interests, potential, that sort of thing. And being being okay with that. This is who we are. Not to say that we can't grow and change and pivot and, you know, go for goals and all these things, but at a very fat fundamental level, particularly, you know, for kids, kids who might be struggling with something, you know, um, it's important for them to start to see themselves as capable within their own unique context, whatever that looks like for them, right? And it's not going to look the same for them that it will for a peer who doesn't have the same challenge, who isn't struggling with, you know, a medical condition or other sort of situation that holds them back on some level. But the key is figuring out where are your strengths? What can you do with those? How can they take you towards your potential in a way that feels good and makes sense and contributes back to the world in a positive way? So that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about ordinary in that talk and when I'm talking about ordinary in general, you know, and, and again, going back to, you know, my kids, 
you know, the one who struggles a little bit or who has struggled a little bit historically, you know, really helping him. And this is what we're really seeing him to appreciate his own unique context and where are his strengths within that context and what is he capable of and what are the possibilities? Whereas that's not going to look the same as it does for his brother. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But we really want him to appreciate who he is and what he's going to be able to go- do and, you know, where he's going to be able to go as a result of his his strengths and and otherwise. So that's sort of a, a long-winded answer, but that's kind of what I mean by ordinary, this idea. Yeah, yeah. I hear uniqueness and individuality and honoring who we are as individuals and what, you know, what works for each one of us. So mm-hmm. maybe a challenging question, but it's there for me is like, do you see that there's a downside to particularly with kids, our emphasis on everything having to be extraordinary, the best, like, you know, that there, it seems like contextually, there's a lot that is done somewhat driving and pushing, but then I even see some of it where it comes from, I think a good place, a heart warmed place, a heart informed place, I should say of like, oh, but you're so like, I, I had a little bit of this of like the world would say to me how extraordinary they thought I was. And I mm-hmm. built up a construct of expe- self-expectations which of oh, yeah. course were never achievable. Right. And and there's there's a danger in that, right? Having expectations that are so high and partially created by external sort of values that that can become challenging. And I I do think that there's a, a downside in sort of this high expectation model that we've got going out on out there in society because it sort of, you know, is the opposite of kids understanding who they are within their own unique context, being okay with that. And I don't mean that they shouldn't be pushing themselves to their maximum potential and, you know, challenging themselves and setting goals and that sort of thing. But it has to be realistic. And I think that all of the external pressures that so many of our kids are facing, you know, you've got to get into the best college. You've got to be the best on your team. You're great. You got to be, are you kidding me? Like that's horrible. See, I don't agree with that model at all in terms of, because I see how it can hurt kids. You know, if you've got a kid who is a B student, that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. they've probably got some other strengths, some other attributes that are going to help them to compensate for that down the road. But telling a kid in eighth grade or ninth grade that, you know, they're failing because they got a B on their report card, not, you know, a 4.0, I think does much more harm than good. It might, you know, spur them on to get that 4.0, but at what cost, right? Right. When it's a, and, when it's proving or overcompensation, you know, what that can do internally for them and their sense of, of self value worth. Yeah, exactly. Because in my, in my opinion, and I, I see this in my own house as well, and I've seen it play out with clients time and time again, you know, if a kid is authentically working as hard as they can, you know, and, and we can see that as parents, we can see if they're putting in the effort, we can see, and we also want to be having conversations with them about, you know, what's your plan? How are you going to, you know, study for that test or whatever? How are you going to get that project done? You know, with all the other things you have on your plate, because kids have heavy schedules these days, yeah. lots of heavy yeah. schedules. And so if you see that a kid is authentically trying, that's all that matters, in in my opinion, from a psychological, emotional wellness perspective. And again, I'm I'm living this model right now, as well as, you know, seeing it play out with, with many, many clients. And so I really think that's the piece that we need to be focusing on. How can we help a kid to maximize their own unique potential, whatever that potential is, right? And and not all kids are wired to be 4.0 students and that's okay. And the thing is like more likely than not they're going to do something extraordinary down the line using another sort of side of their skill set. You know, we see that out there. There there are stories about that all the time, you know, that we can mm-hmm. we can see. So that's that's kind of a, another long-winded answer about the no, expectation piece. Yeah. And yeah. It makes me think about, I read a lot of Malcolm Gladwell for a while there, and he wrote a book, Outliers. 
And he, there was a paragraph in there that really struck me because I, you know, I didn't have a huge McDrive. Like I, I mean, staying on top of what I needed to when I was coming back from being sick was about what worked for me. And I was a like low A, high B student for my first two years in high school. Mm -hmm. Ironically, I self-created and figured out that I could graduate high school at the end of my junior year. And quite frankly, most of that was driven by social. Like I was really struggling with the social atmosphere in high school. And I quite frankly was trying to figure out how the heck to get out of there. And I looked at transferring schools. I looked at study abroad programs. And then I figured out that based on the requirements in New York state, I could actually graduate a full year early. When I had this goal and this challenge in front of me, Mm -hmm. my GPA went up. Yeah. Like it like shifted something there. But in Malcolm Gladwell's book, he was talking about how, you know, you take the top 1% of students and then they all go to Ivy League schools and there's only room for 1% of them to be the top 1%. And you have all these kids who are used to playing at the top of the game. And now it's impossible because they're all in one pool. And the amount of anxiety, depression, suicide, suicidal ideation, like people deciding that they're no good, like literally ending. He's like, we like take the cream of the crop of them. And and not that they're not trying to say that everybody has value at every level. Right. But we take the people that academically in this one area, right. Are the ones who are excelling. Mm -hmm. And actually we lose something about what they could do in the workforce and what they could do out in the world and create because of what happens when they get put into this pressure cooker of these kinds of schools. And Mm -hmm. he said that some of the best people are when they're not quite there and they go to state schools and they thrive in the state schools and it builds a lot of confidence. And I'm like, that was me. Like, Like I never was that compelled to look at. I had my very clear judgmental righteousness about (laughs) I'm not going to spend that kind of money on school. But like, I had a little bit, one of my uncles even was like, you should go to Brown or you should go to, you know, Cornell. And I was like, it never hit me. I went to state schools. Yeah. I went to three state schools because I kept changing my mind about what I wanted to do. A little resiliency built in there. But I saw that for myself. And until I read that in his book, I'd always kind of held it like, I didn't really go for gold. I could have pushed myself more. What it, what would my life be like if I had gone to Cornell or Brown or if I had done something like that? You know, maybe I was missing the boat somehow. And in this paragraph, this chapter where he talked about what they see statistically is the way that students will go on to thrive and have excellent careers and be more successful in life, even make more money, you know, have a more satisfying career going forward when it's not pushing them all the way to their very, very, very tippy top edge. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just started to relate to that. It completed something for me about my own academic career, you know, that just had always been a little bit of a, of a thought for me all the way through that. So it's, it's really interesting to see that reflected in what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an amazing, that's a really important point that you make. And, you know, I had actually a very similar experience in that I was at a very competitive high school growing up and I, you know, I was a B, B student in high school, but I didn't, I, my test scores were terrible, like terrible. And so nobody at my high school really kind of, you know, was kind of taking my college trajectory that seriously. So I kind of took it upon myself to explore some of the smaller liberal arts opportunities that I might have. And I jumped on one early decision and best decision I've ever made because I thrived in this environment, you know, lots of opportunities for me there that would not have been available had I gone to, you know, one of the bigger schools on the East coast. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it, it works out. And that was, I think a big piece of maximizing my potential within my own unique context. And of course there are always those thoughts like, well, what if, but you know, kind of reviewing and bouncing back to the, okay, but who were you at that time and what did you need? And, you know, that's, I keep coming back to the awesome opportunity that I did have going that route, but sometimes convincing kids of that reality is not easy. And Mm -hmm. I'm again, seeing that play out in my own house, you know, with one of my boys is very competitive high school and everybody is shooting for those top schools, that 1% thing. And I'm not convinced that that's right for everybody. In fact, I know it's not right for everybody. And, 
to sort of shift gears and pivot on that and really examine, okay, so those schools are great. They're awesome. But what is the right environment for me? And I think that's a really important question, you know, to be asking our kids and to be thinking about for ourselves, you know, as we're adults moving forward in, in whatever domain we're working in. And that brings us back to where we started in the conversation of one of the first steps in resiliency is, is awareness that, Mm -hmm. you know, that inquiry, that self-reflection, the, what is right for me? What is a good fit for me? You know, where, where the, what are the kinds of environments that I might thrive in? And I can imagine this transferring right over to questions around career and, Mm -hmm. you know, job placement and those, like, I miss the collaborative aspect, but man, having a virtual practice and being able to move about and that kind of freedom and like that I run my own practice, like it really, really works for me. Yeah. And and then I can see where now I'm 14 years into my career and I'm like, okay, I do miss being in a team and collaborating with others and building things. So I'm exploring right now, like what might that look like? What project might I want to take on? Where might I want to expand? I will always have my private practice and I love it, but to have that be a component and and it's in that self-reflection of what's going to have me the most fulfilled and nourished and where do I think I can be the most self-expressed. And there's aspects of my leadership that I don't express inside of the way my business is set up right now, aspects Mm -hmm. of ways I want to contribute that I don't fully express. And so now I just get to challenge myself to what might those be, but that all comes from the self-reflection and self-awareness and like looking in on these kinds of of details, what environment would I best thrive inside of. And when people, I get students who come to me asking about what is it like to be a naturopathic physician? Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty honest, like I, it's a tough career unless you are truly coming from a place of it being a calling. Mm-hmm. If you feel like this is my calling, this is my like reason to be on the planet, then you'll be yes. fine. It'll sure. all work out. But yeah. it is not the easiest medical field to go like hang your shingle and make a living and have all your finances work exactly the way you want to the same way that if someone really was interested in integrative medicine mm-hmm. and they go become a physician's assistant or they go to medical school or they look mm-hmm. at being a nurse practitioner where they may be able to practice with a lot of autonomy from yeah. inside the system uh-huh. and bridge over to integrative medicine that's a personality thing. Like there's like, you know, what's going to suit you more? Are you going to be more comfortable and secure walking out of school, knowing you have a job, you will be hireable. You can go plug yourself into the system. You can have that kind of security and then build from there. Or are you a bit rebellious? Like I am, which is do not put me in a box. And I did way better going the other way. And if you put me in a box, I will be the first one to find, you know, my way out of it. And so like, I have these conversations and explorations with people and sometimes it helps them choose like they're on the fence between do I want to go traditional pre-med or do I want to go more the integrative naturopathic route? And there's different schools like in our naturopathic community, some of the schools will line up more with those different personalities and career choices and, you know, looking at what's really going to work for you in this, this conversation. So important. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Those are all really, really important points. And yeah, it's it comes back to that intentional awareness and reflection and understanding yourself on a level that allows you to make the choices that are, are right for you. Keeping in mind that you can always pivot if you find that perhaps the choice was not the right one. But yeah, you know, I went it, from forestry major to professional chemistry to naturopathic doctor. And I don't quite know how that all, I mean, I know, but like, it was an interesting till I found my way here, you know? Well, yeah, absolutely. And that's another great point because rarely are any of our trajectories linear, you know, there's most often some sort of circuity going on where, you know, we go from, you know, this point to this point to this point, very rarely is it A plus B equals C. In fact, I would probably argue that it's never A never. plus B equals C. <laughs> what are some of your favorite tools, particularly for kids or things that parents can work with their kids on in that self-awareness? Like, like, like it's one thing to say it, but like how might that conversation go or what are some things that people can focus in on to help guide their children into those reflective states? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, for very young children, we want 
kind of modeling and we want to be integrating some very foundational sort of stress response management tools, you know, maybe sort of blowing bubbles or imagining our favorite place or, you know, something that's going to be sort of calming to set that foundation. And we want to continue with those types of practices with, with all our kids because those help to foster that reflective awareness sort of space that we need, right? Because we need to be kind of in a stress managed space. And that will evolve into more kind of specific mindfulness tools with older kids and that sort of thing. We also want to be modeling for our kids, particularly when they're old enough to engage in a dialogue with us, sort of modeling our thought process around, hmm, how did we make a decision on, you know, X, Y, or Z, whether it be school or career or job that we're in now or what have you. So modeling through discussion, that's really important. And also, as I mentioned, sort of being transparent about our own challenges over time as parents and otherwise with our kids. Obviously, they have to be at a certain developmental, in a certain developmental space to take that in. But that's super, super important. And then, you know, having ongoing conversation, ongoing connection as a family, dinner table conversation, throwing questions out. You know, with younger kids, I really like, and and all kids, but particularly with younger kids, really having them highlight two to three things that went well in the day so that we're not always focusing on you know, the challenges, what went wrong, what should I have done better, you know, all of that. That's a really important piece. Urging kids to express and feel gratitude is another really important tool that we encourage because that also helps to shift one into a more kind of self-aware, reflective state. So what am I really thinking about here? What's important to me? That sort of, it's a little bit kind of all over the map here, but those are some some examples of what we can do and how these examples play out across kind of a developmental continuum because it doesn't look the same at all points. Yeah, I mean, I th- the place I have to reflect from is my own experience as I haven't had my own kiddos, but, you know, my mom was really, really great at being a safe space to communicate into mm-hmm. and she would drive us everywhere. Like Mm -hmm. taxi service 24 seven. And when I got older and I started to talk to her about what that must have been like such a pain in the butt for her. And she says, well, it's actually usually when you guys opened up and spoke the most about what you were dealing with, what was really Mm -hmm. going on. So she's like, I would always do it because it'd be 20 minutes here and there. And Mm -hmm. I'd get to really hear what you were dealing with, what was going on in your life or what you were thinking about. And I remember so many of those times and those conversations sitting in the front seat of the car, sometimes even sitting in the parking lot of high school, not going in for class while she's like, I'm going to write you a note. Let's keep having this conversation. Right. And like being able to express my feelings or express what I was dealing with or what I was worried about. And, and that for me, I put it in the context of, of cultivating emotional intelligence and like, Mm -hmm having kids reflect on how they're feeling and having kids reflect on what they're feeling and, and, and taking some self-responsibility in it, but also knowing Mm -hmm. it's okay to communicate that and how that helps us develop self-awareness period. Just what am I feeling? Mm -hmm. I work a lot with adults and a lot of times we have to start from a very, you know, from the beginning of like, Mm-hmm. so much doing and so much striving towards goal achievement and productivity, there hasn't been a lot that goes into actually slowing down and even knowing like, are we, you know, many of us are very disassociated from our bodies. Like, how do you mm-hmm. feel in your body? And they, they, a lot of times we can't get past the words, just it hurts or I'm fine. Right. And so yeah. I do that a lot on the physical level, but it usually goes hand in hand into the emotional spaces as well of, you know, Mm -hmm. how I'm actually feeling in my body and why. And like, I pull up charts of different words of emotions for people to start to pull through, you know, it's not just anger. I'm actually feeling defeated, you know, and getting into those specific nuances. And it makes a difference in our body. It's like releases something when we kind of nail it, how we're actually feeling and generating that. I find that correlates into people that feel more confident or stronger about their decision-making process because they're making mm-hmm. decisions from that sense of well-being versus yes. making a decision from the external being informed by what I think I should do or what's being expected of me. Right. Yes. And that is such an important point. That's sort of what I think I should do 
and what's expected of me. And that drives so much for so many, particularly our kids. And that's what we're trying to kind of dial back here. And I love this notion of helping folks to really identify what is that feeling, you know, and that's another piece that's really important with kids. You know, if they are talking about a challenge at the dinner table or in the car or whatever, you know, it's, it's trying to help them understand well, what is the emotion that goes along with that, with how you're feeling. Yeah. Clear. As we kind of start to wrap up this conversation, one of the other perspectives you have though, is how to support parents for their own self-care, especially particularly when they have a child with a medical need or certain particular, you know, concerns or challenges. So what are some of your top favorite things to hone in on with supporting parents dealing with challenging family circumstances like that? Yeah, absolutely. And so self-care is first and foremost, right? And whatever sort of carving out a self-care plan that works for the specific parent, you know, and because we can't have someone, you know, start running if, you know, they're, they haven't run in 20 years and they hate exercise, that kind of thing. But some sort of movement is very, very important. But even before we get into that, it's, it's this notion of finding a way that works for you to manage your stress response. So whether that is, you know, meditating for, you know, 20 minutes in the morning or even 10 minutes in the morning, starting slow, doing some yoga, something that's going to calm your nervous system and your mind to that quiet space. Really, really important because you really need what we really want folks to be managing their stress response on a consistent basis. And they're not going to see the impact of that until the practice is consistent. Hmm. So self-care in that way, really, really important. And then, you know, there's a lot of power in movement, whether that's full-on exercise or just, you know, a slow walk around the neighborhood, something every day to get outside, get some fresh air, connecting with others. We know the power of social support. And all these things are easier said than done, particularly when there's not a lot of perceived time in the day. But what we always, I what I always try to encourage folks to do, and I often help them with this, is to really map out in a very way what their day looks like and to figure out where we can plug some of these practices in because, you know, it's going to be a lot more cumbersome in the long run to say, oh, I don't have time to take care of myself. And then, you know, the crash and burn is likely on the yeah other side of things. So self-care is the number one thing, whatever that looks like for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big conversation that I have with my clients too, you know, who are clearly there to produce a particular outcome for their own health, but Mm -hmm. it seems like, well, then it should be built in, but it's not always the, the first thought. And it's like, managing our stress levels. Like it's always tricky when I hear, you know, people are like, well, my doctor said I have to reduce my stress. And I was like, okay, what does that look like? And they're like, I have no idea. (laughs) You know, like, I'm not going to quit my job. I'm not going to change these circumstances. And so I recently, my sister was actually sharing this with me, but she's this pretty smart cookie. She usually does her research really well. And so she was Mm -hmm. saying in some of the things she's read about when they were doing a lot of neuroscience and brain studies on Buddhist monks, who had mm-hmm. a lot of meditation training, they started mm-hmm. to notice, you know, changes in how their brain responds to stress and how their body responds yeah. to stress. Yeah. And then that led to further studies, even in people that are not, you don't have to be a monk that literally just spend a little bit of time. It was something like the impacts of meditation will stay in your body for about 26 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's so often is the drum is beat of daily meditation and the importance of daily meditation. Right. But it clicked for me in that like, the daily ritual, mm-hmm. going for a walk, spending time outside, you know, even sitting in a hot tub. Like I had one set of parents where they had a hot tub and from 10 to 11 PM, the kids were supposed to be in bed by 10, 10 uh-huh. to 11 PM, parents and hot tub were off limits. You have to take care of your own stuff, whatever you need. You should be sleeping. Hopefully that's what you're doing. But otherwise, like we are in and mom and dad time was there Mm -hmm. and they got to be together, connect, unwind, you know, but it was this built-in self-care for their relationship and for themselves Yes, Yes. and, and how daily rituals, Mm -hmm. you know, and, 
And like, I'm not always the craziest about like having a regimented schedule. Like I like my freedom and flexibility, but very much recently. And as we started talking about coming out of the lockdown and the more extreme conditions of the pandemic, I've really noticed that I've needed these daily rituals and the things that I do every single day around, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been walking three miles a day has been something I took on in 2023. And I do other things, but that has actually been this like touchstone, this set point. And I watch myself shift. And it was really interesting to see the research actually backing up that it's the daily meditation where you Mm -hmm. get this benefit. And then over time, what they saw was people's nervous systems didn't respond the same way to the same stressful stimuli. They had more resiliency in their nervous system, how they'd even respond to it. Mm -hmm. And I always knew I should meditate every day, but this uh-huh. was like, <laughs> no, like actually, this yeah. is like, no, actually I'm in, I'm in. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, and, and it's hard to, to get the routine started. And so a small step forward is better than no step forward and sort of building from there. And then your, your nervous system and your body starts to expect it. Right. And then, yep. so that makes it easier to maintain the routine. So I, I love that. Those are really important points. Awesome. Kate, this has been so wonderful to get to spend this time with you and all of your amazing knowledge and wisdom. And thank you for just highlighting this conversation. It's such an important place for us to look from of what it is to take care of our family members and take care of ourselves. And how do we support our kids through, you know, setting them up to have the resiliency, to have the decision-making capabilities, to have the self-confidence. I just, I can't get over this conversation of the power of being ordinary. This is a really good one for me. And I just really think it's of a lot of value what you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation as well. Thanks so much. Awesome. Until we get to do it again. All right. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Kate Lund, for her kindness and care. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. Okay, guys, it's 2023. What does that mean? Well, as much as I may want to resist going with the ye old New Year's resolutions, I do find that in January, I have a renewed sense of energy and desire to make some changes and get back on, or just get on for the first time, the horse of health and well-being. Now, in the midst of our seventh season of Heal, I wanted to check in with you, my audience. What do you need now in your healing journey? What are your goals? What are you struggling with, dealing with, or even resigned to that you don't think will ever change? What has been there lingering in the background that you just don't want to drag into yet another year? I want to hear from you. I want to connect and be sure that we are delivering on the topics of information and inspiring stories to support you in your healing journey. When Kendra and I first crafted the idea for Heal, it definitely came out of my personal desire to put as much goodness and possibility of health and healing out into the world. And not actually here just to entertain you. My true heart's desire is that this show makes a difference in your life and supports you to take action to live health and heal. Also, I want to be sure that you know, I have a comprehensive deep dive medical health consulting practice where I meet with my clients virtually from all over the world, and I have room for you. Many people ask me if I'm taking new clients, and while I love that y'all think I'm book solid 100% of the time, actually, I want you to know I am available. I offer a free 30-minute exploration conversation to anyone interested in working with me to learn more about each other and how my approach may make a difference for you. Commonly, I work with people dealing with hormone issues, gut and digestive issues, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders, mold toxicity, chronic allergies, migraine headaches, insomnia, and people who have dealt with chronic anxiety and depression looking to support their body's biochemistry in addition to healing their emotional and mental challenges. While that may seem like quite a list, most of those diseases are connected and disorders are connected. So we will bridge the gap to bring it all together to elevate your health and your well-being and get your life back. 
I have a deeply intuitive and scientific-based approach. Yes, both. I bridge the worlds of coaching, spiritual energy healing, and doctoring to bring you the best tools you need to get your life and your health back as efficiently and effectively as possible. The early months of the new year come with an increasing light each day, bringing new vision, new motivation, and new energy. As the seeds you planted last summer and fall, deep beneath the soil are slowly waking up and gathering their power to sprout new futures this spring. This is the perfect time to take new action and create health and a pathway to healing. I'm here for you. If you have felt called to find out more about the possibility of working together, please reach out on my Connect page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com, and let's talk. Also, please contribute to the show with guest ideas or topic ideas or how-to guides or whatever it is that is going to make a difference for you this year in 2023. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to know about? What are you dealing with? You can shoot us an email on that same page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com slash connect. I love you guys. Heal wouldn't exist without you. Thanks so much.